What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and this is another episode of Totally 80s. If this is the first time you're joining us, why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. You can see our episodes on video as well on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so check that out if you are so inclined. And joining me today, as always, is my partner in all things 80s. The Wendy to my Lisa, John Hughes. Uh, uh, you got the look, Lindsay. I see you got the look. John, is the water warm enough? <laughs> yes, Lindsay. Shall we begin? Yes, Lindsay. Okay, then. Well, now joining us, obviously, we're talking about Wendy, Lisa, The Time, Sheila E., Sheena Easton, Vanity Six, Apollonia Six. What do these names all have in common? I don't think it's too hard to figure it out. They were all prince protégés and mentees during the 80s. And joining us to talk about all of them is a returning guest to Totally 80s who has had a long career writing about music and culture. Starting at his college paper, he has gone on to write for Billboard, Rolling Stone, the LA Times, Spin, NPR, Vibe, and many more. You can also currently read his work on rhino.com as well as see him every Friday on the Rhino Report across social media. But we know him best as one of the writers for totally80s.com. Welcome to the show, the Sheena to our Easton. <laughs> Scott Sterling. Yeah, I'm I'm going to officially designate myself the Des Dickerson of the group. There you go. I wasn't sure where to go with it, so I'm going to let yeah. you appoint yourself as yeah. a member Just of whichever. Because Des, Des and I had a, a real connection back in the day. Did you uh, really? I, in my head, we did. Uh, okay. All right. Well, he will definitely come up as well as many members of the revolution. Obviously, Prince was a revolution unto himself in the 80s. He was so prolific, though, in the 80s, especially that he was not only one of that decade's biggest stars, but he was instrumental in launching many careers of the decade's other biggest stars. A lot of them were women. Um, I will right now just say right out there, there are some people. I remember when Prince died, there was some jerk friend of mine on Facebook who I've probably since unfriended or blocked or at least muted, who was like, Prince put women on the stage wearing hardly anything in lingerie. I'm like, Prince put himself on the stage <laughs> in lingerie. Easter you know, Atlas chaps. One. Have you seen the cover of, you know, caught a lot of, you know, <laughs> what was the album cover where he was wearing basically like leg warmers and panties? Yeah. 
Dirty mind, baby. And a trench coat. Dirty mind. A dirty mind. So, you know, he was equal opportunity. There was, I, you know, I feel he was, his appreciation of female artists and, you know, uh, was actually pretty ahead of its time. And we will get into a lot of the female protégés and mentees that he took under his wing and did amazing work with. But I do want to start with the time. I, we got to start with the time because conventional wisdom is that was all Prince. But if you look at the talent that came out of the group, I mean, Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis alone, like architects of the Minneapolis sound, so many tentacles and things we had, you know, I mean, Jack Jackson recorded control in Minneapolis. You know, um, if you hear like a Bruno Mars song from, you know, if you, if you hear anything like uptown funk or whatever, you hear the entire Mark Ronson uptown album that's basically a tro a time tribute album for the most part. Absolutely. And Prince might have written those songs, which he did, but as someone who saw the original Time in Concert twice, <gasps> as a band, that outfit was absolutely insane. You could not mess with them. You couldn't. I mean, I would I saw Prince twice on the 1999 tour, the Triple Threat tour. Wow. And those shows were like such baptisms of like this is how live music should be performed. And the time like, as far as my older brother, who took me, was concerned, the time just blew Prince out of the water, just killed him. As far as I was concerned, the time, while they were amazing, Prince killed them. And hmm. they really, the time to me was like a great Motown band, like The Temptations, just on steroids, mm -hmm. because they were the band and the front guys. Everything was in unison. Everything was in lockstep. Nothing was out of place, not a note. Everything, it was insanity how tight they were. But for me, as a kid, I needed that Prince, just wild man running around half naked, just being insane with no constraints. So that spoke to me more than the time, which spoke directly to my older brother. And mm. it was it was a perfect, perfect balance. Because by the end of the night, you had just been completely just overwhelmed by all of this, just musicianship and just this. These guys were such entertainers. I mean, the original time was so good. There were certainly nights, I'm sure, where Prince just wasn't able to follow that. And I think that he actually kind of enjoyed that. The fact that there was somebody who he knew every night was going to push him to be the best he could be. And I'm sure there were nights that he fell short because that band was lethal. They were absolutely lethal. Incredible, incredible have, shows. Have you read Morris Day's um, autobiography that he did with David Ritz? <laughs> I have not read that entire book, no. It's called, about, it's called about Time. I mean, was, <laughs> yeah, it was a pretty great title. Well, I'm he talks. Calling it the oak tree or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> he, 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 talk, he talks about that in the book. Um, I don't know how much Prince enjoyed it. It was a, not a friendly rivalry, but sometimes <laughs> not a friendly rivalry because, as Morris says from his side of the story in the book, yeah, there were nights where the time opened up for Prince and were so spectacular that Prince was like not super thrilled about it because mm -hmm. he did have to follow that. I will say I'm so jealous that you got to see yeah. the time back in the day and that you got to see that tour. I never did. But I will say there was one time when Morris Day upstaged Prince. He did the impossible, in my opinion. I feel Morris Day is the is the star of the Purple Rain movie. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. It sounds like it was more of a biography than it was uh, yeah. A and really, Morris should have immediately spun off and done other visual things like yeah. acting. He really, I mean, immediately he should have done it. I wonder because why he did His didn't. timing was just, it was just perfect. He was so great in that movie. Do you know, I, I interviewed um, 
when that book came out, I interviewed Morris Day and we talked, of course, about the film and about the fact that he sort of stole the show from from Prince himself. And I said that and he started to say that a lot of the scenes were improvised or ad libbed or, or there's a lot of things that, that ended up in the film that were in the script. And I said, oh, what was your best ad lib? And he goes, how's the family? And I went, oh, yeah. my God, that wasn't in the script. Like, Incredible. give him an Oscar for script yeah, that's what I'm writing saying. just Incredible. for that. Just the timing, the look, and the way he delivers the, I mean, come on. So tell me it's more like, about like your thoughts about the time back. It, you know, they had, you know, the dances, they had the bird, they had jungle love. Of course, I mean, the Jerome mirror. <laughs> let's thing. not forget poor Jerome. Let's Jerome, not, no, let's, dude, integral part of the show. I mean, the Paul Rutherford of, of the time. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Every band needs its bez, you know. <laughs> exactly. Yes. He he. Jerome was the groundbreaker there. He was like the first hype man, right? He was. It was very in the tradition of the classic James Brown when James Brown had the yeah. guy there bring out the cape at the end. They just kind of extended it and turned it into this whole routine with the mirror and the comb and just. And he plays another great character. Just what a great character that he always stayed in, no matter where you saw him. What do you guys just think? That of era was so fantastic. <laughs> what do you guys think of ice cream castles? I mean, it was obviously to me uh, uh, an attempt to try to be more top forty. To try to you know they had the success with the bird, and it was like okay, either. And you started to see just how important people like Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis really were to the whole operation. Mm. You know, it was. <laughs> I will say, I found out about the bird. I'm looking up this interview that I did with Morris at the time. I just basically was like lightning brown, like, tell me this story. Tell me this story. The book is really a treat. Apparently, the bird was inspired by the Flintstones. There was an episode <laughs> of the Flintstones where, you know, Pebbles and Bam Bam, because, you know, that movie was in the or that TV show took place in the 60s where there were like a lot of dances and stuff. It was called the pterodactyl. So awesome. the bird. So this is what he's saying to me. He goes, we were on tour with Prince. And at that time, we started to kick a little ass a bit and outperform him on stage. And he wasn't liking that. So we started doing The Bird, which was apparently they used to watch Flintstones episodes on the bus or something like VHS episodes. <laughs> we started doing The Bird Dance. And he said, you can't do that, Morris. He said, because he also did a vocal thing that was like a bird screech. And it was too close to what he was doing. Mm. And then he goes, but he told us, of course, if we said we don't do it, we were going to do it more. He said, so we got in this big altercation about that. We kept doing it. It almost led to a fight. But then Prince came around and he said, he was like, hey, I got a song for you. It's called The Bird. <laughs> <laughs> so he had the last word. And he goes, oh, so you didn't like it? And then that did actually become their yeah. uh, top four, first top 40 thing. And then he actually said the mirror routine. Of course, I asked him about that. And he said they had recorded a song called Cool and it added to the show. And um, it was beginning to do okay on the charts. And at rehearsal, when he said, somebody bring me a mirror, all of a sudden, Jerome, talking about ad-libbing, he took a mirror off the wall and walked up to him with the mirror. And they were like, aha, as an aha mm -hmm. moment. And they, <laughs> said, and they all looked at each other and they said, that's going to be the show from now on. Yeah. And there you go. History was made. History was made. I, I, what was on Ice Cream Castle besides the title track, of course? Uh, well, you, Jungle Love and the Bird were in Purple Rain, and that came out before Ice Cream Castle. So Ice Cream Castles was kind of like the, the album that kind of collected everything that was coalescing. And they were working with someone named Jamie Starr. I'm not sure who that was. <laughs> that guy. Hmm. <laughs> Friends, obviously. But the single was Ice Cream Castles. The was title Jerome track. Starr, no, Christopher? 
Are they friends? I, I, mm, that's a good question. I think they're yeah. related, actually. Yeah, <laughs> they, prob they probably hang in the same circles. Anyway, go on, John. I'm sorry. Uh, it just it, it, it to me the title track seemed really like uh, watered down time. It was almost like it was written for someone else, like the Bengals or something. And you know, absolutely. Yeah, it, and to me it was a real shock because they were coming from this really strong uh, two two punch singles you know jungle love and the bird and then you get this kind of ballad thing I, it, it was weird to me i don't know and then the album's a lot of filler like chili sauce mostly filler yeah so it, it wasn't a way to capitalize on all that momentum that they had just built up yeah it's weird for me you know obviously they're still big they play the circuit i went to see the time obviously not the the, the current incarnation of the time a few years ago play on santa monica pier and the beach was just full of people doing the bird on the sand <laughs> it was like they were doing the seagull you know yeah. it was just like so many people and it was like obviously these songs are in time but i it is surprising me that more morris didn't go more into the acting i'm looking up more <laughs> about this interview i did with him where he basically, they, you know, Prince sent everybody to acting class. He sent like the revolution to ballet class. He sent <laughs> the time to ballet class because he thought that would help them. And it did, obviously, with their staging and, and just sort of how to position their body on stage. And Morris told me that when they were doing an improv class, he said, I kept cutting up. Every time they gave me a skit to do, I would make everybody laugh or do something silly. And this acting teacher kicked me out of class. Who kicks Morris Day out of acting class? He said, you need to spend your time at the beach or something. Oh, interesting, since I just mentioned the beach. He goes, because you're disrupting this class. So he got kicked out. But then when he met with the director, Albert Magnoli, uh, Albert noticed the comedy skills. And he sat down with him with the script and said, you know, how would you say this line? And a lot of the lines got rewritten in the Morris character. Yeah, he needed his own show. He really oh. needed his own movie. He needed his own everything. For sure. I think the time have kind of a happy ending, though, because... People forget about that 1990 reunion album. I forgot about it. Yeah, but it had a top 40 hit, which I'm blanking on right now. I think I think it's called Hot Chocolate. I'm just throwing that out there. I don't know. I don't remember what the single was, but it did really well. But it just seems to have been lost to history. Yeah. Yeah, but he, you know, he's read the book about time. There's really a lot of good stories. And he talks about going on tour with Prince because he was vi the videographer for Prince. Yeah. He took the video of when Prince went out in his dirty mind panties and leg warmers touring for the Rolling Stones. And that it didn't move. That's a flex right there. <laughs> and it didn't, it did not go so well. And it was like a rare moment where Prince did not go over well with an audience and got booed and, and jeered. And um, apparently I officially hate every single person who booed Prince at those shows because of those people. I didn't get to see Prince in 1981 because my brother took me to go see the Rolling Stones on their big 81 tour. And the lineup when he bought the tickets was Prince, Santana, or was Rolling Stones at the top, Santana, and Prince. Mm. He was on the bill. We had the tickets. I was going to see Prince. Super excited. He gets booed so bad in L.A., jumps off the tour. Mick Jagger personally is like, Prince, please come back. He comes Aww. back for the second night. They boo him even harder. He gets off the tour altogether. So by the time the Stones get to Detroit, it was Rolling Stones, Santana, and Iggy Pop. And they well, treated Iggy, Iggy Pop, Pop, they treat him just the way they would have treated Prince. 
Yeah. It was incredible. His band, he had like Clem Burke on drums that night. His band Damn was it. insane. And they were and they were amazing and they were booed the entire time. You know so that everybody who went to that was it like where was it? LA Coliseum, wherever that LA show was, major stadium. You know yeah, everybody was who's everybody who was there 40 years ago was now like, oh, I saw Prince back in the day. <laughs> They're all bragging about it. No the, one's gonna I heard confess. The audio recordings. The audio recordings are absolutely terrifying. Well, somewhere in Morris Day's video vault, he's got like Betamax video. He was the videographer. I'm like, I wouldn't be surprised if Prince was like destroy those tapes, but seriously, he was there. But let's move. Like I was saying, a lot of the proteges and mentees in, in the Prince world were women. I believe he really celebrated women and their artistry. And you know, he he had a lot of women in his bands going back to the '80s. Again, sometimes when there's men who take women under their wing as mentees there's sort of a feeling of a power imbalance a power play and exploitative feel to it i didn't get the vibe of that with prince at all it seems like you know obviously he did have romantic relationships with a lot of them but it always felt like respectful if you read interviews with people like uh sheila e if you talk to wendy and lisa they never have a bad thing to say about how they were treated by him they always have for the most part very fond memories it was very interesting because he had this like a uh, I don't want to say harem, but he had all these women who were kind of like made in his image. They had like feminized versions of his suits. They had feminized versions of his <laughs> hair, whatever haircut he was rocking at the time. And his hair changed from album to album. But they always were sort of like, you know, his family is like his sisters. Mm, or something. Interesting. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic. So I think we should probably start, you know, we'll, we'll kind of go semi chronologically. We got to start with Vanity Six. I want to see I mean... Buddy tell Brenda from Vanity Six what to do. And see how that goes. <laughs> I'll sit back and watch. You tell Brenda what to do. Well, Woo! tell me that because you're like a big Brenda stan. Right, I am the biggest Brenda stan you're going to find. She is the secret weapon of Vanity Six. I'm sorry. Uh, you listen to If a Girl Answers, Don't Hang Up, where Brenda has her breakdown in the middle where she's like, oh, hand me the phone. <laughs> go take a bath and puke. I mean, it's just the best. It was the perfect foil because you've got like this total sex pot. You've got the little like kitten little girl. And Teddy then here Bear. comes Brenda comes with her like menthol cigarettes and 40 ouncer and just laying down the law and just setting the record straight. It was where it was perfect. Handcuffs hanging off her lingerie. I mean, th this is Brenda's badass. Brenda did not care. Amazing. Amazing. Brenda in Purple Rain. Brenda in Purple Rain. People forget she's in there and she's like, mm -mm, nope, <laughs> get away. <laughs> I, I, Vanity Six Live was incredible as well because I mean, really? they would perform and behind them was this big curtain. And then behind the big curtain was the time. The time, so the was, time the was playing yeah. the music. And so the music was even better than it was on the records. And I mean, as far as I was, I was very, very young. You but got to Van see Vandy Six live. The Triple Threat Tour. That was a Triple Threat Tour. Oh, my God. Tour. Did they lip sync Prince. or did they sing live? I'm they curious. sang. They Good. sang. And the time played the music behind them live wow. behind this big, like, mesh screen. I've got some really bad, like, 110 photos I took <laughs> <laughs> where you just see, like, this figure in front of this big blurry thing. But it was Vanity <laughs> Six. And they sang their songs. And the time was behind the screen playing the music. And as far as my young mind was concerned, Vanity was the most beautiful woman I ever seen in real life. Like wow. it was just shocking how gorgeous she was. And you could not take your eyes off. You were just like, what is happening? But then you had the comic foil with Brenda. And then, you know, Susan was off to the side with this giant teddy bear. And it was just this crazy, almost like Russ Meyer-esque like scene 
Like David Lynch could have totally produced their live show. It was just so out there. The but thing very about, cool. The thing about the Vanity Six album is everybody focuses on Nasty Girl, obviously, which, by the way, so many good songs. Yeah, didn't even chart. But <laughs> Vanity not? No, it bubbled oh. under. That's as close as it got. Hmm. But Vanity Six was really kind of Prince's uh, bubblegum. It was very poppy. Uh, yeah, it's got so much fun with that record. You can hear it. I hear some Detroit techno in it too, as well. Well, yeah, so, makeup is like an electro electro track. Makeup mm -hmm. is hard. You can play that at the DJ set now, and like people will be oh, like, "What is that?" Drive me wild is amazing. Um, Beautiful but, uh, songs like "He's So Dull," obviously right, trying to <laughs> really trying to get a top forty hit yeah. for them, I think, and almost to the point where it's almost too bubblegummy and too yeah. like "Bite the Beat" is almost like a parody song. You're just yeah. like, "What is happening?" It's like a parody new wave song because it's just so poppy and so bubbly. I but, love that record because it's so like it is definitely a candy store. It's just a delight. It's a pop <laughs> record. And, yeah. and it's you know, I think it's really sadly overshadowed by the big hit, you know, yeah, the big, big time. Big, that being girl. that being said, the big hit though, it does pop into pop culture over the years. I remember when the Neptunes were coming up and doing like particularly when they were doing Slave for You by Britney Spears. Oh, yeah, that was or a when, direct, direct rip. <laughs> I mean, it was ex I mean, in a it was an homage, I'll say. Yeah, Let's say yeah. it was an homage. Yeah, homage not a rip, is a better but, I'm also a Pharrell fan, but it's just it was so obvious what he was doing. You're just like, oh, yeah. Right? <laughs> and, and even a little bit like with Milkshake by Khalees, just that sort of production definitely was, but particularly with um, Slave for You. And then when Donald Trump in the election after the presidential, one of the presidential election debates with Hillary, where he called her a nasty woman, like there were two songs that started to trend that both have Minneapolis ties. One of them was Nasty by Janet Jackson, you know, produced nice. by Jimmy Lam Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis. And the other one was Nasty Girl, less less so, unfortunately. But both of them, I started to see people tweeting that song or whatever, like sort of in defiance to that horrible Nasty Woman comment. So, like, occasionally those songs do uh, pop up back in the public consciousness. But I do want to go off on a Vanity solo sidebar for just a second. I'm pretty sure her solo stuff was not produced by Prince or Prince <laughs> no. was not involved. Because the quality, shall we say took a little bit of a downward turn let's just I put it that way andre simone uh, okay well some of so it's kind of tangential but yeah was he involved with pretty mess i was just gonna uh, say <laughs> that classic single well <laughs> i want sad part pretty mess and under the influence charted in the hot 100 but that's a pretty girl, mess didn't. That was, I, you know, for a very, very long time, as we all know, you know, Vandy passed away not very long before Prince passed away, like within less, like two weeks before, less than a month before. But she had very much disavowed this era of her life. You know, she had uh, really, you know, gone down a dark path with addiction. Yeah, it, was, it, was, it was a hard time for her. <laughs> I mean, and so yeah. she, she put this part of her life, but she was Denise Matthews again. And for many years, the pretty mess video was impossible to find online. If it popped up online, it got taken down very fast. You can find it online now um, since she died. But what I, I did watch it recently and I found it via this whole blog, an entire blog, someone had a lot of time on their hands. They wrote an entire blog with screenshots of the pretty mess video. Was that song about someone? I'm sorry if this is like not PG for the podcast, but it's a podcast, right? Was it, about, <laughs> was it about someone, a man um, ejaculating on a woman? Because that's I, what this blog said. The in, uh, I didn't think that was in question ever. Okay, yeah, well, when it, it such came a out, it went on my dress. Yeah, is okay. there another? <laughs> so it, it wasn't <laughs> subtle then. I don't no. know. 
could have spilled. I blame you know. that entire era on Tommy or who is it? Nikki Six. That <laughs> there's I some very there's it's some very, very it's proto uh, Monica Lewinsky. I mean, if you really yeah, <laughs> there are some very weird um, tangential protege connections between Prince and Motley Crue because Tommy Lee went out with Maite and Nikki Six Gross. went out with Vanity. It's so like grosser. Very strange. Very strange. You know, who would have thought that that would have been the connection? But yeah, okay. When Pretty Mess came out, I was young and I did not get the reference. I just thought like, he, I mean, I got it was sexual, but I thought like he made a pretty mess of her dress from yeah. like a, a champagne. champagne yeah, or pop. like tearing yeah. her dress, like tearing her yeah. clothes off passionately. Just, like I got that it wasn't like he dropped, he accidentally like spilled, oh. you know, his food on her or something. You, know? you mentioned the video, the video full of uh, things exploding. And yeah. Well, <laughs> I revisited it through new eyes when I read this blog and I forgot. The only thing I remembered about the video was that starred someone who looked very much like Lamal, who I thought was I cute at the time. <laughs> anyway, since we've now talked about Vanity 6, Vanity 6 begat. Apollonia 6, it is my understanding, you know, sort of talking about how Denise Matthews, aka Vanity, wanted to put this era behind her. She quit. Get, tell me if I'm getting this right. She quit Vanity 6. So she was supposed to be the romantic lead oh, in Purple Rain. And then absolutely. that didn't happen. So Apollonia auditioned for it and got the part, and the rest was history. And the Apollonia 6 album almost exists entirely in demo form. Uh, with vanity vocals there are there's a vanity version of sex shooter blue limousine uh so it you know they were working on a second vanity six album that was then repurposed somewhere something happened i i just i'm convinced of it because the next thing you knew vanity was like knee deep in cocaine and nikki six and on the cover of playboy magazine which i still own by the way did she ever wow. do any music with Nikki Six? Because she was obviously a musical collaborator with Prince. Did she ever do any like hard rock or anything like that? Not, she, not that I know of. I just um, know that when she was with him, it, she was at the like the bottom of her life. And then in his book, he blames it on her. Well, that's I, unfortunate. The hardest rock and vanity ever got was Seventh Heaven from The Last Dragon. <laughs> oh God. Well, back to back to never. Well, since you say that there was a whole Apollonia six album that was, you know, also with the van but with Vanity's vocals. Now, am I mistaken that the song Manic Monday, who which obviously later became a really big hit for the Bengals, didn't Apollonia Six record a version of that? There is a, a demo that if you do some creative sleuthing, you can find a demo of Apollonia Six doing Manic Monday. And actually it was going to be an Apollonia Six single. And Prince Prince took away a lot from Apollonia 6 because there's another track that I, I'm probably going to come to mind in a few seconds. Two or three tracks were supposed to be Apollonia 6 tracks that got removed and then repurposed for other artists. But I do love parts of the Apollonia 6 album. Two things specifically. Blue Limousine, which there's a video that was never completed. It's like eight minutes long, this extended version. Uh Somebody leaked it. It's on YouTube now. It's amazing. You got to see it. Uh, really the whole that song validates the entire album, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. It's classic, classic Prince. It's such yeah, a great track. It was a single, but it didn't do anything. And of course, Sex Shooter, which everybody knows from Purple Rain, and that was like the big single. Uh, 
there's just one part that every time I hear it, I have to do it along with Apollonia. And it's where she goes, I can't hear you. <laughs> I know exactly the Unfortunately, we can hear you. Yeah, she was not a strong singer. Oh, I love it though. It's so bad. It's great. It's like so reedy and just like, yeah. I can't hear. <laughs> but it's perfect. It's kind of perfect. I assume you guys have heard um, the 2019 album compilation originals that was Prince doing a lot of the songs that he gave or or wrote for his mentees and protégés, but doing his version. And I love the version that Prince does of Sex Shooter. And there's versions of, you know, Holly Rock and their Jungle Love is on there. What really stood out to me from just listening to that album in general is I maybe kind of assumed that when he gave his songs to other artists, um, how should I put this? That they they put their own stamp on it or that they like made it right. their own, as they would say on American Idol. <laughs> pretty much not. They pretty much took his direction and pretty much did whatever, like obviously right. it's there's there's not there's much not variation between. Yeah, yeah. It's like note for note. I don't think it was like uh him, you know, putting his stamp and saying, Don't change this. I like because Bangles Manic Monday is produced by someone else. Uh Sheena yeah. East, you got the look. Um I think it's more of, hey, this demo is so good. Why what would you a great mess, song? <laughs> why mess with the arrangement? Why mess yeah. with the approach? And you know, I think that's why they sound so similar yeah. to the demo. He has this this bass songwriting ability that will never cease to amaze me. The song that I always go back to is "When You Were Mine" from Dirty mm -hmm. Mind. It's just it's like the perfect pop song. It's literally perfect. Cindy Lauper covered it, and made it into a hit. But it's why just, was, it's why was that not a single for Cindy Lauper? She said, Was it not? No, I, mean, I feel like I saw it on MTV, like a live concert version video. Yeah, but it was never a single. It's like, oh, it, huh. and it was such a beautiful, like her rendition of it was so like emotional. You could kind of feel this like extra sort of like gravity in the vocal and just so emotional and heavy. And it's just yeah. the, the baby because the, the bare bones song is just so well made that if you can just even get around the melody, you've got a hit on your hand. I'm surprised someone hasn't redone it today. As a do single. do we consider tangentially, maybe more adjacently, the Bangles and Susanna Hoffs in this category of what we're talking about? Because I mean, obviously, the Bangles were. To. <laughs> I think you have to. I mean, especially considering that song peaked at number two only because Kiss was at number one, blocking it from hitting number one. Oh, interesting. Does anyone know? I I'm not. I don't know offhand how. Obviously, the Bangles, like I say, aren't. Susanna Hoffs is not a protege of Prince. The Bangles right. were already around. They were already very well established. But what is the story of how Manic Monday, which was recorded by Apollonia and written by Christopher, friend of Jamie Starr, how did it end up becoming a Bangles song? He saw the video for Hero Takes a Fall. On <laughs> and like any red-blooded American male who is straight... <laughs> Like us straight guys, he was immediately like, oh, my sweet Lord, I, I believe, must get to know this woman. I believe the term is besotted. He was there it is. by Susanna <laughs> yeah. and reached out to uh, her and the management. And, and a cassette showed up one day and, you know, from Christopher saying, here's a song. <laughs> Do we know if they ever, I mean, like I say, a lot of the women that he had. No, I'm not trying to be salacious here. No, no. A lot, I feel, I a lot of the women. She that, has said plainly they did not have any kind of relationship. Right? They, they did not yeah. date is what I'm trying yeah. to say. He was, he was a gentleman. He was a gentleman. 
Well, that's what I was trying to say is like, even though he did have relationships with some of the women, we haven't talked about Sheila yet. He had a very serious relationship with her. Um, It wasn't, I don't know, for whatever, it doesn't seem icky to me. It seems like there was respect. There was egalitarian and they both got something out of it besides the personal enjoyment they got out of their relationship. It was like, it was collaborative. I mean, maybe he was the one in charge because as I just said from originals, a lot of his versions ended up being, you know, the the versions that became hits for other people are pretty faithful versions of what his vision was. But it just doesn't feel like gross is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Paisley Underground aside, though, since we're talking about the Vagals, are you guys familiar with the one album that the Pais- that the Paisley Underground band, The Three O'Clock, did that was on Paisley Park Records, Vermilion? A lot of people don't remember that Jason Faulkner, Jason Faulkner would almost be a podcast unto himself because I don't know if there's anyone who's been in Jellyfish and the three o'clock and Community of K, but he did all those things. But he was on this later uh, edition of the three o'clock and there's, and it was recorded. I don't think Prince produced it, but he did. It was recorded. uh, It was released on Paisley Park Records, but there's one song on it called Neon Telephone that Prince wrote. That yep. I would say is one of the best non-Prince <laughs> compositions. I want to hear a Prince version of that because I'm sure it's in the vault somewhere. That song is such a banger. It's such a great song. Such it's a so- magical combination of artists because most Prince fans, most mainstream music people have no clue who or what a three o'clock is, what the Paisley Underground is. And like I was a total nerd who discovered the three o'clock on MV3 all the oh way. Oh my in god, MV3. They oh performed live on MB3, and I literally the next day went to Sam's Jams and bought Baroque Hoedown, the EP, which I still own. I know those songs inside and did they, out. Did they do sh- Her Head's Revolving on that too? It was uh, I Go Wild, and of course, okay. Cantaloupe Girlfriend, which is you know, <laughs> <laughs> one of the greatest songs ever written by anybody. So, do you I know just- how the Prince combination was it through the Bengals? Did he discover the three o'clock through the Paisley Underground thing? How did he even have that band on his radar to sign he was, them? He was plugged in. He, he was, was seriously plugged in. Plugged in. Uh, he was watching MTV. He was watching. He probably saw him on IRS as the cutting he was edge. Very, he was very Elton John in that way, where they were such music fans and constantly shopping and listening to what's new and trying to see what was out there. And then like, oh, let me try my spin on this. And you know, like you can hear on Dirty Mind. You can hear the Cars influence all over that record. Yes. You can hear that he was like, oh, this Rico Kasa guy's got some good ideas. And he totally like flipped it. And I love that about him, the way he would soak up these things because you can hear it. So cool. Absolutely. About unusual signings to Paisley Park, I have to throw one out. Uh, after Missing Persons broke up, he signed Dale Bozio. What? Dale, and she I was, was unaware. I'm really? today years old. I'm today years old. Tell me this whole story. Rechristened as Dale. Just Dale, and uh, had an album "Riot in English" with the <sighs> singer, Simon Simon, which is written by Prince. And this you know, came, this came out. Yeah, oh, yeah. 89, 88, 89. And yeah, I bought the album on cutout like the day after it came out. <laughs> was it good? I guess it wasn't if it was in cutout. Inf- infamously horrible, yeah, uh, despite the AllMusic.com review, which really kind of is <laughs> uh, someone like you know. Her phrasing is uh, uh, Neapolitan. Yeah, you have to read this. Uh, Written by John. Oh Bozio. my God! You would <laughs> Someone related to her. Yeah. Uh, oh man. By I'm, Terry I'm, Bozio. Now that I, I'm actually a little bit embarrassed that I didn't know about this, but on paper, now you're uh, obviously it didn't work out in reality from what you're telling me, but on paper, 
Makes it, complete sense. It does. <laughs> her image. Sense. And yeah, it, I could see her with and a print. missing persons with a bunch of Frank Zappa art musicians. So they could all wow. really play. So, you know, Prince is probably like, hey, these guys can actually play too. You know? well, here's the problem, Scott. Strip all those guys away. Exactly. Exactly. You got no Terry Bozio anymore. You got no more Warren Cucurulo. Like. You're left with Dale hiccuping over uh, Prince demos for about yeah. an hour. And, Do you think he gave yeah. her his not best songs? Uh, I think he tried. His I, sloppy seconds, his scraps. No, I don't know. Uh, just uh, love as, as much <laughs> as I love persons and as much as I love Del Bozio, there are limitations. Yeah. And some of those limitations. And it doesn't sound like he was fully committed. You know, like, yeah. Let's like, just get this over with. Yeah. yeah, he didn't produce it. I believe it was another David Z production or something. Oh, like there that. you go. So, you know, he, was, he wasn't involved. He was, he was contributing. He signed her. But yeah, it didn't work out well. But, you know. D uh, did they date? I don't think that I've never heard that. No, no, no. I, yeah, I definitely never heard that. But I would love, I would love to believe it. <laughs> I would like to believe it. I think they'd be a striking couple. Well, obviously, Prince worked with so many people that we are not going to get to all of them in just one episode. He worked with so many people that we're going to have to make this a two-parter. So, Scott, can we can we get you to come back? If you let me talk about Des Dickerson, I'll do anything you want. <laughs> all, right. all right. It's a deal. So I have been Lindsay Parker. I've been joined today by John Hughes and Scott T. Sterling. We want to thank you for listening. Remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform, and we'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally 80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.